AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Stan, it looks like we have more ransomware. Yes, you can never have enough ransomware, it seems like. Um, and it looks like this time around, it's got a little bit of a different twist to it. Uh, besides a name that's a little hard to pronounce for me, it's actually impacting servers, which is a little bit different than what we usually see. Yeah. A lot of ransomware that uh, we typically talk about impacts desktops or people's devices. Usually you get it through like email. But this one called uh, Lilu for short, uh, Lilu ransomware, uh, it's actually got an interesting extension called Lilocked or something like that, L-I-Locked. Um, what it does is it somehow, and it's not clear yet exactly how, gets on servers and encrypts the files there. So if you've ever gone to like uh, just a website, uh, it'll actually encrypt all like the HTML files or the JavaScript files and put them with this Lilocked extension, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it basically impossible to visit the website. Um, and then it drops a readme file that gives you directions for how to decrypt your stuff. And this part is very similar to what we've seen before. It asks you to pay some Bitcoin, um, go to some Onion website to learn more about how to do it and how to get your key. Um, there are some rumors on a Russian-speaking forum that talk about how this thing might be spreading, um, and they believe it might be uh, related to XM email software. It's not clear exactly hmm. what that means or how that works. Um, and then the final thing I guess this article mentions is that somehow the ransomware gets root access. And again, this is another thing that's not uh, clear exactly how all of that happens. Yeah. Where we see ransomware is we see it manifest itself in desktops and, and laptops. And those are usually Windows machines. So this was a little bit different in that it was targeting Linux servers. So uh, another security researcher looked into this. So this is easy to find because of um, what it does to the file system. It, it creates a, a readme.lilocked file in the web index. So somebody was able to do like a little Google dork or a Google search and find that there are at least uh, 6,700 different results for uh, different servers that are out there uh, that might be impacted by this. So. Uh, the tagline, thousands of servers infected, it seems pretty accurate. Um, so I, it says right here, I'm reading that it, it actually targets Linux-based systems? Right, yes, and that's uh, pretty unique, right. especially uh, more unique than what we usually uh, kind of cover on right, the show. Right, right. Well, you, you mentioned they, ransomware typically will, will get a, a user's machine, like a yes. laptop or a desktop. Yes, exactly. Usually that is a Windows machine, so a Linux server is kind of a whole different yes. set of, of victims. Yes, yeah. exactly. And the spreading mechanism here is still unknown. You know, there's some suspicion it might be related to maybe the XM email client. Mm -hmm. uh, but with the exploit vector unknown, it is kind of dangerous because it's a little bit harder to know how to protect yourself. Yeah, it's also harder to know what the exact scope of the problem is if it's able to get root and we don't know exactly how. Yes, that's, exactly. That's a problem. Well, that's why the XM uh, assertion you know, isn't necessarily a bad one. Um, you know, in the lack of evidence, it's as good a guess as any, uh, since the recent uh, XM vulnerability does allow for remote root um, compromises, and there are some rudimentary proof-of-concept code uh, samples out there um, from uh, what researchers have uh, identified so far. 
Um, but uh, I suppose the other interesting factor about this is that it really seems to be um, noticeable on web servers. It's not locking up the machine and making the machine unusable. It's really targeting web-centric kinds of um, installations. So if you've got you know, a LAMP stack um, kind of uh, footprint out there on the Internet, uh, definitely paying some additional attention to what's going on on those servers uh, may be advisable. Yes. It does seem just from the top results on Google that the websites that seem to be compromised are poorly managed, I would say. You know, they're kind of like outside of the usual like enterprise management. Uh, uh, I, that, at least they sound that way. Um, so, mm -hmm. yes. So there hasn't been any high, uh, like a, any notable victims of this ransomware so far? It's just sort of been low-level websites that may or may not be mismanaged? Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. Right. At least that's what it sounds like. Yeah, okay. For ransomware in particular, if your files do get encrypted, you want to make sure you have solid backups um, off-site or somewhere else um, that are not on the same server um, so you can recover. Uh, only recover after you've finished patching the system or you've done an investigation to find out how the compromise happened in the first place. Hey Mike, I'm excited to hear what you have for us today. You know, it's, it's no secret that, you know, for some time now, attackers have been looking for new ways to live off the land, right? That way they were able to, you know, go um, into an environment and have less of an opportunity for the, you know, defenders of that environment to be able to identify them. And there was a great story uh, that came out about a new, quote-unquote, piece of malware um, that is leveraging the BITS service in the Windows platform, which is the Background Intelligent Transfer Service, uh, as part of their um, technique uh, for gaining access and, uh, you know, exploiting an environment. Uh, so the BITS service, uh, as it is known, uh, was introduced in Windows XP and it's used for doing uh, asynchronous file transfers and background process updates. So things like, um, you know, updating programs, um, downloading files, things like that that happen in the background. And it does this dynamically using unallocated or unused network time. So if the user isn't using the computer, it will use those free cycles and that free network bandwidth to do those file transfers in the back end, making it really transparent um, uh, from a uh, user perspective, right? Very non-impactful. So this new malware, um, which was actually written in 2015, uh, is called Win32 Stealth Falcon. And this is being attributed to a, a threat actor group out of the Middle East um, that is predominantly targeting um, journalists, activists, dissidents, other types of um, anti-government uh, kinds of individuals and organizations in order to uh, backdoor their systems and gain intelligence and details about what they're reporting on and then possibly, um, you know, using that information to take secondary action. What this um, application does, uh, once it's on to the uh, endpoint, which I don't believe um, people are really certain about how that initial infection takes place, but uh, it is a backdoor program that can be used to then call through data and package that data for exfiltration. And what it does is it encrypts a copy of the data that they want to take, and then it uses the uh, bits process to talk to command and control uh, infrastructure as well as to exfiltrate those files. And then once it has done that, 
It will actually overwrite the log files as well as the data that it exfiltrated uh, with random data and then delete uh, those, those encrypted files uh, to make them very, very difficult to recover or analyze uh, with forensics purposes. Generally, we see malware doing like their own custom um, C2 channel or command and control, like they'll connect to a website or something like that or DNS. Uh, but this time, uh, using the bits component uh, for transferring data, I think that's unusual or something that hasn't been seen before. Um, it kind of blends in into the system and that's something that advanced adversaries really love because it's part of the system. They don't have to do anything custom. It might even look like a normal part of uh, what the operating system does on a day-to-day -day basis. The tool can also be used to then um, deploy secondary payloads and additional malicious tools uh, on the endpoints. And this is interesting because of that use of that, of that bits service, right? It's very difficult. Um, to identify abuse cases of that service. It's very likely that host-based firewall um, type technologies are going to allow that communication in and out of the host without really interrogating it too terribly thoroughly um, because it's sort of a known process and it's a trusted process. Um, so while antivirus packages are doing a better job of looking for that kind of thing in the past couple of years, um, it's still something that, you know, uh, has been exploited by other malware programs. We should expect to see this exploited by other future malware programs. And so it's something that we're going to want to keep an eye on and make sure that the endpoint protections are definitely updated uh, to, to address that. On the upside, um, even if you're unable to catch the abuse of the BITS service, anytime the malware takes action on the machine and starts to modify registry keys or touch you know, protected files or things like that, um, any of your endpoint um, security solutions should be able to identify that type of malicious activity and alert you to its presence. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it reminds me of something old becomes something new. So bad guys probably use like DLL order hijacking frequently to insert like malicious DLLs into legitimate looking processes. So when you're first starting out, I know like as a malware analyst, you have to first of all like learn what is normal and where do you get these DLLs. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's uh, interesting to see that the bit service is abused. Now, do you know if it's just um, they're running under the bits umbrella, so to speak, or is it they're somehow using the communication protocol of bits as well to exfiltrate the data? I don't, I don't believe they're using the, the bits process as like an umbrella process. They're using it as a data transfer mechanism. So oh. rather than trying to use HTTP or HTTPS or tunnel it out via DNS traffic or something like that, all of which are very common uh, techniques that we've seen, uh, they're using that bits service as that data transfer mechanism. Well, it's not the first time that we've seen bits be used for nefarious purposes. So I, I agree with you, Mike. I don't think it's going to be the last. What's interesting is that this particular technique, um, you're seeing it being used both in the state-sponsored threat actor groups, and it's also made its way into the non-espionage or non-state-sponsored uh, threat actor groups as well. So again, it's kind of a, another interesting example of you know something that um, may have originated as a state-sponsored technique that has now made its way into kind of more of the criminal underground side of things uh, and seeing that technique proliferate um, kind of more broadly across the um, you know, cybersecurity space. 
this is definitely one to put in our like security defense playbook as well one more area to look for things during forensics mm -hmm. uh, things like this just always remind me of just like these big th things that adversaries do like doubling my persistence you know for a while like everybody knew what kind of persistence mechanisms there were on a windows machine then doubling my persistence was talked about a lot and so this sounds like just another c2 channel um, that the bad guys will be able to employ and we just have to be on the lookout for it great story mike Make sure your endpoint software is up to date. So if you've got any AV running, Windows Defender, things like that, you're going to want to make sure that they are up to date because that would be your best your best bet in detecting this. The whole point of BITS is that it, it does its thing in the background when you're not using your computer. Uh, it's sort of there when, you're, when your computer's not active. So it's going to be really difficult for you to, to notice anything is going on with your computer because it's only running when you're not using it. So you're going to want to rely on antivirus software uh, or Windows Defender to make sure that, that your computer isn't suffering from any sort of bits vulnerability. So Andy, I guess we're going to continue with the malware theme today uh, with your story, right? Yeah, we are. We're going to be talking about Goot Kit a little bit. Uh, G-O-O-T Kit. Okay. I don't know if I'm... It's kind of hard to say. But uh, for those who don't know, Goot Kit is a banking trojan whose goal is to steal your banking credentials. And it does that by recording your screen or by redirecting you to fake banking, banking login pages. Um, that's how it works. So a, a security researcher by the name of uh, Vitaly Kremes, I hope I'm saying that right, he found that GootKit actually uh, attacks Windows Defender by adding itself, uh, by adding the directory that the malware lives in to the um, what is it called? It avoids detection by adding it to the, the scan exclusion list. Mm -hmm. So it basically tells Windows Defender, don't scan this directory that my malware is in. Um, and the key to doing that is the, through the use of the uh, good old fodhelper.exe. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, fodhelper.exe is a Windows 10 management tool. Uh, it was found to allow UAC or user access control bypass um, in 2017 by a researcher by the name of uh, Christian B. That's all that's known about him. So essentially what happens is when an, when an application wants to perform a task that requires administrative purposes, it, it uh, brings up a little prompt on your screen and it asks you that for that permission. It says, hey, I want to do something as an admin. And you give it, you know, you say yes or you say no. Um, bypassing that means that you can run things in the background as admin without the user knowing. Um, so that's kind of a big problem. So what, the, what Christian B found was that FOD, uh, FODHelper.exe actually runs with the uh, auto-elevate attribute set to true, mm -hmm. which means it can run itself with a higher privilege uh, on its own when it deems it's necessary, um, which means it can do things without bringing up that little control prompt letting the user know that you know, something's happening in the background, basically. So what Christian uh, B was able to figure out was that the fodhelper.exe works by first checking for a few registry keys that, strangely enough, don't actually exist by default in Windows 10. That's actually kind of normal. Uh, is it really? Yes, there's a, that's how they do a lot of uh, GPO policies later. They like ah. introduce certain registry keys, and if you have them, uh, then whatever, you then can apply that setting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it checks for some registry keys that just don't exist by default in Windows 10. Um, and then if it finds those, then it does other things. So what Christian B was able to figure out is if you just create the keys that it's looking for, one of the keys actually lets you dictate it and, and enter in 
um, further instructions on what to do when it's running. So essentially what you can do is you can not inject, but you can kind of say, hey, open this uh, application, and then it'll run with the higher privileges because that's FOD helper.exe runs as, you know, as as It's admin. a helper. Well, what else would it do? It's helping help you. <laughs> exactly. Help you get root privilege. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, now we, so now that we know what FOD helper.exe does, exactly how it works, if we talk about GootKit a little bit more. So the first thing GootKit does is it checks to see that Windows Defender is actually enabled on the machine. Uh, and then if it is, it'll create those registry keys. Uh, and then with WMIC, it'll actually go in and um, it'll add the directory that the malware is going to be sitting in or is sitting in to that exclusion list so that it actually doesn't scan the file itself. Uh, and then it'll actually go in, it goes in and it deletes the initial registry key uh, for some cleanup, and then it actually was able to figure out if, it, if the bypass was successful. A lot of malware um, really needs to take those types of actions these days on an endpoint. I mean, doing uh, penetration testing, I can tell you that, you know, Defender does tend to shut things down a lot better uh, than it used to. That particular defense mechanism has really come a long way in the last several years. Uh, so trying to avoid antivirus or, you know, uh, Defender, um, these are things that, you know, every attacker uh, is got those techniques in their playbook and their malware has to be able to do that as well. So uh, certainly not surprising that it's trying to do that and find a way to sort of sidestep that control. It is interesting um, the, the method that they've used to do that, though. And I'm surprised this method, I'm not totally surprised that a method exists to, like, kind of bypass the UAC control, uh, but I remember it being, like, the mechanism that was supposed to help prevent some of these escalation yeah. items. You know, you can become root when you need to, when you click yes, um, and Windows kind of enforces that. So seeing a process being able to do that without the dialogue is a little bit of a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something I, I want to look into more. Thanks yeah. for bringing it to our attention. Yeah. But it's worth noting that in order for this to work, the user has to be admin on the okay, machine. To start with. To start with. So, you know, a lot of folks are admin on their machine, you know, whether, whether they know it or not. So that's something. Um, and then you can, you can always, I think there's a setting that you can say always, always prompt or something to enforce that uh, even still, so. It just points back to the general best practice that really, if you want to really mitigate a lot of risk, you really need to operate that principle of least privilege across all users in your environment. You want to make sure that you're on the lookout for uh, your system acting abnormally. Um, if you know, you're using a product like Windows Defender or some other AV product, make sure that it's enabled, it's not reporting any issues, it's not showing like a little warning icon that it's up to date. Um, and periodically do review uh, your configuration uh, for the software to make sure that the things that are kind of like in the whitelist or things that don't get scanned uh, are the items that you expect. Hey Andy, so I have the Internet Weather Report for this week. This is where we talk about the different things we see on the Internet um, and what's kind of going on. So uh, the top 10 most probed ports, this is the report that we use to understand probing activity on the Internet in general against different ports. So this is by volume of scanning attempts. So um, the ports that usually show up here uh, indicate that there's a large interest in identifying them. There's a large volume of scanning activity targeted against that port. So there's not much change. Um, in the top 10 most pro ports. Um, but the two ports that I do want to talk about today is port 445 TCP, which is commonly associated, well, 
supposed to be associated with SMB, but more commonly now is associated with WannaCry, which is um, basically the exploit that uh, the ransomware that spreads by exploiting Eternal Blue or Eternal Romance and other exploits like that um, to spread itself on the internet. Um, so we'll look at that. And uh, the next port that I want to concentrate on is um, port 34567 TCP. And this is a port that we believe is associated with DVRs uh, running on the internet. And actually, um, I think last week, John Hogeboom talked about this as well. So we're just going to revisit some of the things that basically he mentioned. Cool. Um, all right. So every time I've been on ThreatTrack uh, this year so far, I've been playing this little game of uh, tell me what you think is going to happen for port 445 TCP. So first, let me set the stage. You could see this is a view 900 days going back since April 23rd of this year. So this is scanning activity by number of devices scanning against this port 445 TCP. And you could see there's a little spike right here. That's, uh, that's basically the weekend that everybody called in because WannaCry was in the news. And that weekend, everybody felt great. So when they went home, that spike went way down. And everybody felt really good, well accomplished. We did it. We did it. Everybody did it. But something happened. <laughs> it kind of came out of uh, people's perception or it wasn't in the news again anymore. And people stopped paying attention to it. And since then, the threat has actually increased quite significantly. You could see scanning activity against the sport uh, really, really went up. But then, I think the first time I did this uh, kind of chart, I noticed that activity had started going down. So basically every month when I'm doing the internet weather, I like to revisit the sport and try to predict what's going to happen next. Now, I'm just going to give you some history, okay. uh, and then I'm going to ask you what you think is going to happen next. Um, so here we see activity going down over the months, uh, and then sometimes staying out. the same. Yeah. So I guess the question for you is, what do you think has happened in the last month? Has the activity gone up, um, stayed the same, or gone down? And I'll give you a little hint. It's a trick question, as I've learned, uh, by looking at this week's data. I mean, knee-jerk, it looks like it might go down. All right. It's trending downward. It's trending downward. So this week, uh, when I looked well, at it, it looked like it went up a little bit, but yeah. it's come down basically to the same level where it was at. Gotcha. So it looks like since at least October of last year, we have been on a downward trend, mm -hmm. but we do, do seem to have plateaued in the number of devices scanning on it. Why do I track this? Because I'm curious to see how we're doing as a whole for the internet with dealing with this threat, with the WannaCry threat and all of the computers that are impacted by that. Yeah. Um, the numbers of infected devices are likely uh, you know, much higher than this. And I guess I just realized I never mentioned what the numbers were, but you could see here, you know, on average, you know, 50,000 devices per hour scanning. But a lot of these are behind like a NAT or some sort of a gateway and might represent a whole compromised network so of devices. It's likely there. more than that. It's likely way more than that yeah. uh, based on the number of assets that are out there. And because it is a worm, it spreads automatically, and so it's really hard to tamp down, unfortunately. It's fun. Uh, to try to take There's care a, of it. So there, I want to make mention, actually, in early 2018, very late 2017, it's hard to distinguish. There's that little dip. You see it? Yes. Do we have a, an explanation for that? Any theories or anything? I don't think we have a good theory about that, um, but that's a, yeah. Just something that happened. That's very good. You know what? Next time I do the show, I'll have to look into that. All right. So now we'll move on to another segment. So this is the top 10 most sources probing. 
So this is what we use to study botnet activity, which is a bunch of compromised devices or devices acting in concert on behalf of an adversary. So we look at scanning activity as well. Generally, when adversaries are scanning, they're trying to identify some sort of an exploit or they already know about an exploit and they're trying to take advantage of it mm -hmm. so they can grow the botnet. When they have the botnet doing the scanning, it shows up pretty clearly on this report. So today, of all of these ports, which we've covered before, um, I want to concentrate on port 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 TCP, uh, which John covered last week, but I think it's important to uh, kind of look at it again. So this is one year's worth of activity scanning activity against the sport. So this is by volume. So this is how much scanning is happening total, regardless of how many sources there are. And you could see there, you know, I guess there was a peak of about 150 million flows per hour um, sometime, you know, in this month. Now, let's take a look at this picture, the same picture, but now this is the number of scanned sources. So this is the number of devices doing the scanning and contributing. You could see how similar the graphs look. So when we looked before, this is the volume, and you could see it's probably, at least in certain parts of this graph, directly proportional to the number of devices scanning. Mm -hmm. But not always. Yeah. Sometimes it looks like the scanning spikes might be caused by something else. Some heavy hitters. Uh, some heavy hitters or somebody interested, or even um, the adversary trying to look for devices to compromise or something like that. Um, other things that are interesting when you look at a year's worth of data like this, I always like to look at things like this. What is that little blip right there? Could that be really the beginning of this botnet or the beginning of the investigation of this threat? Perhaps, or maybe not. Maybe that was just somebody maybe it's nothing. Uh, yeah, doing something. Yeah. Um, but here, you could see that's kind of really where the threat really began. So was that mid-July there? Mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody was looking for this got a bunch of devices, kept going and kept going. But when they came back now, you could see how many more devices there are. So, uh, you know, about 8,000 or so devices per hour scanning, about 18,000 devices or so per hour scanning. So many, many devices out there, all doing this in concert, probably part of the same botnet or the same type of malware. Um, okay, so, I always like to take a look at the scanners themselves and find out where they graphically dispersed, where, you know, where are they coming from. And sometimes you see a concentration. In this case, you see a heavy concentration like in Brazil, Europe, maybe the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. With other threats, you might see other countries being impacted. Why is this important? Sometimes it helps you to understand you know, where the threat is coming from. So like, for example, if these are IP cameras, they might have a specific brand maybe, perhaps. They might have penetrated the market in Brazil or something mm -hmm. like that, which is why you see so many devices emanating out of there. Or they might be really well sold, uh, you know, like here in the Middle East or in, in Europe. Um, so it's just a, a way to understand where the devices might be or what type of device it is. Um, so we also have a honeypot that we can look and see what's going on. You could see the last 60 days in the honeypot the events seem to be about the same. You could see the same kind of spikes with scanning activity uh, or scanning events as we see in the larger graph from before. Um, and with the honeypot, we can also see, well, what is being sent? Uh, so what is the potential exploit on this port? And to me, it looks like um, brute forcing 
using a very specific type of protocol. You can see there's all these like hexadecimal bytes here mm -hmm. uh, that it's not clear exactly what they are, uh, but they're followed by this kind of JSON blob. Um, and this JSON blob is basically, it looks like it's attempting to log in into like a DVR uh, or an IP-based DVR mm -hmm. with the username admin and with these different passwords. So um, that's clear. Uh, I actually took a few of the scanning IP addresses that we detected and I sh took them and looked them up in Shodan to see what kind of ports they have open. And uh, it was very interesting. They all had RTSP open, uh, which is um, like a streaming protocol, yeah. real-time streaming protocol and uh, some alternate web ports. So not port 80, but like port 81, port 83, port 82, things like that. And if you search these passwords on Google, you'll actually find that they're in various password lists for being the root password for DVR systems out there that get sold. Um, and pretty much, it seems to me that that's the activity we're observing, is these DVR cameras that are out there. Somebody knows how to install malware on them and probably to install malware they need to log in as an administrator and they're using these frequently used passwords or you know backdoor passwords i would say in order to be able to achieve that um, so we'll keep an eye on this threat we'll see if we can find the malware um, that's responsible for this it's uh, uh, definitely something that as you could see is kind of increasing in severity yeah. and the number of devices that are impacted um, probably because of a misconfiguration uh, that's common. Um, and that's it. That's all uh, for this week's retract. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean the botnet has gone away or the vulnerability has gone away because we have seen this um, kind of in previous weeks where activity spikes up, goes away, um, and so that's what we've seen here. The only issue is that every time the activity comes back, it seems to be more devices are impacted than before uh, as the botnet is growing. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.